How many of y'all know what this device in my hand is? How many of you have ever used one of these professionally or just recreationally? This is a Stanley 25-foot tape measure or a rule. And what this particular tool is designed to do is to tell you how wide something is or turn vertically. This particular model could even tell you how tall something is. And it is a tool used to measure. And so it has all these different units of measure on it. Um, one foot, two foot, three feet, and then inches. And then those inches are broken up into 16 little segments. And every quarter of an inch is marked out where you can tell where you're at a quarter or a half or three quarters or whatever, whatever, whatever. But if you've ever had a job, even if you were doing something around the house where you had to use a tape measure much, if you're working with somebody else that had a different tape measure. You know that sometimes these things can be just a little bit off. And so that your two and a quarter might be somebody else's two and five sixteenths. And that can be a problem, right? And it could be a problem because your two and a quarter might not actually be two and a quarter. And his two and five sixteenths might not be two and a quarter or two and five sixteenths. And so who's to say? How big a foot actually is. Or who's to say how long an inch actually is. Well, thankfully, for such matters, we have the United States government. To clear up all of our confusion. And the U.S. government has a department and a division of weights and measures. Where there is an actual foot. That is the foot. And here's why that's important. Because if you wanted to buy a 12 by 12 piece of carpet. So you're going to put some indoor-outdoor carpet in your shed or carport or whatever and she shed and so when Fred goes to buy his 12 by 12 piece of carpet for his she shed and if each of those square feet of carpet is off by sixteenths of an inch then every one of those square yards of carpet is going to be off and so not only will Fred not actually buy enough carpet but he's actually paid too much for too little so somewhere along the way there has to be a standard. And it's that standard that we're going to talk about tonight as we think about the Word of God. More specifically, we're going to ask, what is the Bible? Now, you're thinking, Brother Jesse, I've got my Bible. You started by talking about tape measures, and now you're asking us what the Bible is. And so we're worried that you might be on the verge of some kind of mental collapse, which you might be right about that, but what I mean is, what is the standard for us when it comes to the content of the Bible? See, I know that you've seen those shows on the History Channel, haven't you? About the lost books of the Bible. And you've heard about the missing Gospels. And so is there something that we're missing? Is there some great conspiracy that maybe involves the Masons and the Knights Templar and a hidden map on the back of the Declaration of Independence that's actually keeping the Bible from us? Is there something that God wants us to have <clears throat> that we don't have? Well, that's the question that I want to answer tonight. And here are actually the two questions I'm going to give you. And then we're going to look into Scripture. And I'm not going to preach to you this evening. I'm just going to try and, and teach to you about this subject. But the question is this. What was the criteria for Scriptures that were considered when Constantine directed they be considered to be a part of the Bible? And are there any original scrolls still in existence? Why do we have the Bible that we have? Look with me in your Bible to Psalm 119 
and verse number 97. Jay, what's making that noise, dude? Is that the wire? Is that the excessive hair? What's the, what is that? Is that me? My jacket? My beard? Hmm. Need to put the windscreen back on here because the beard's not going, dude. I mean, as ugly as his face is, the more hair I've got to distract from it, the better off all of us are. Psalms 119 and verse number 97. Y'all give me just a second. I'll see if I can fix that so it won't be so distracting. Maybe that's a little bit better. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe if I don't move, we won't have a problem. Psalm 119, verse number 97. <clears throat> the Word of God says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. And we will conclude right there. Psalm 119 is an amazing, an amazing passage of Scripture. Not only because it is the longest chapter in all the Bible, the longest psalm in all the Bible, but because it is a masterful piece of Hebrew poetry. Psalm 119 is an acrostic. And what that means is that every line of each successive section begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So if you'll notice in the section that we read, there's probably a little word that may be foreign to you above verse number 97, the little word meme. Well, that's a Hebrew letter, Hebrew letter meme. And every verse from verse 97 to verse 104 begins with the Hebrew letter meme. But when you get to verse 105, you have the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the Hebrew letter noon. And every verse of that next section begins with noon. And so if you've ever wanted to learn the Hebrew alphabet, this is a great place to do it. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zion. You can learn the Hebrew alphabet from Psalm 119. But you have this incredible literary achievement. Just this lengthy 176 verses comprised artistically. This lengthy poem but it's not directed towards the beauty of a lover. It's not a romantic poem. And it's not directed to the glory of a king or an epic feat on a field of battle. This is not like Beowulf or anything like that. But this is devoted to the importance of the law of God. And if you'll just scan the verses here, you'll see that almost every verse contains some reference to God's word, his law, his testimony, his precepts, his commandments, and on and on and on. These are people, you see verse number 97, that love the law of God. And I want you to have that in your mind as you think about the Old Testament saints. These people delighted in, they loved the law of God, at least when they were at their best. The faithful saints loved the law of God. It wasn't burdensome to them. It wasn't something that they resented, but it was a gift to them. And so that's expressed by David's writing in Psalm 119 from the beginning of the Hebrew alphabet, Olive, to the very end, Tav, from A to Z. He gives this beautiful portrait to God's Word. And that's because the foundational principles of Jewish theology, of Old Testament thinking about life and about God, depended on three core concepts. The first is that God is one. The Old Testament scriptures are unapologetically monotheistic. 
uniquely monotheistic. There is one God. And the Old Testament scriptures say that God is a jealous God. And that God is ruthlessly committed to his own <coughs> excuse me, exclusivity. You shall have no other gods before me. <clears throat> There's one God. The second leg of Old Testament theology is that God is good. And this was a, a novel concept to people in the ancient world. That the world did not come out of chaos or violence, but the world was created by a good God and the world was good. And that God, like a good shepherd, was leading his people through life. But the final essential element of Old Testament thinking about God and theology was that the one God, who is a good God, has spoken. He's not silent. He has something to say and he has said it. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to teach us that in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, he did it how? By speaking and God said. And that speaking by God is his acting. God speaks and it is. It is done. God speaks to Abraham. He makes a promise to Abraham. And that promise gives shape and gives structure to the life of the people of Israel. God enters into relationship with the people of Israel by giving them a law, by giving them his word, a covenant on Mount Sinai and forming a nation. And so God speaks. He's given his word. But in the very beginning of God's word, Genesis chapter number 3, you have God's adversary enter into the story. And his very first tactic to assault God and his people is to ask the pointed question, yea, hath God said. And so the temptation that comes to Eve in the Garden of Eden, at its very like fundamental level, is a temptation to think, well, what actually constitutes the Word of God? What is the Word of God? What has God said? And that's the task before us tonight as we try and figure out, why do we have the Bible that we do? What has God said? What is our Bible? Now, I'm going to be honest with you tonight, all right? And to answer this question really, really well requires mastery in several academic disciplines, manuscript evidence and um, textual criticism and archaeology that I just have not mastered as a normal pastor. But I do want to give it my best. And I'm going to try not to bore you too bad. All right? Um, and if it is boring tonight... Right? It happens, you know? My goodness, sometimes church is going to be boring. But this, I think, I think sometimes, I think this will be, <clears throat> I think this will be eminently helpful. So if you would take your Bible and look with me just quickly at your table of contents. That should be at the beginning traditionally. The table of contents. I've got to find mine. Let's see, deaths. The Holy Bible, there we go, contents. <clears throat> and you'll see, and I'm sure you know, most of you know, that the Bible is broken up into two sections, right? The Old Testament Scriptures and then the New Testament Scriptures. <clears throat> Our word Bible comes from a Greek word, biblos, which means book. That's what we're saying. We're saying that this is a holy book, a sacred book. But the Bible is not merely one book. The Bible is actually comprised of 66 different books. 39 books in the first section of the Old Testament and 27 books in the second section of the New Testament. And I think for us tonight, maybe the best way to answer the question as to why we have these books that we do have, and maybe not some of the other books we could have, is to think through it in terms of those sections. Why do we have the Old Testament that we have, and why do we have the New Testament? So let's start with the Old Testament. 
Though there is some disagreement about what would constitute those Old Testament books in some books called the Apocrypha, and we'll talk about those 14 books in a moment. For the most part, there really is no disagreement about which 39 books comprise the Hebrew Bible. In fact, if you were to ask a, a Jewish person who, who believed, was, you know, believed in the Hebrew Scriptures as the Word of God, they would have the exact same 39 books in a Hebrew Bible that you have. Now, the order would be different. Um, you would maybe have the minor prophets in one book and the Old Testament would end, well, it would be their Bible, but their Bible would end with the book of Second Chronicles. The order would be different, and yet the content would be exactly the same. So really by the time of Jesus, and even before, but by the time of Jesus, there was almost no disagreement about what comprised the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, within Judaism or without Judaism, people knew what the Hebrew Scriptures were comprised of. And that's really, uh, really noticeable in the life and ministry of Jesus because you'll find these instances where Jesus is having theological disagreements with his opponents, right? And he will often answer their questions or answer their objections to his teaching by saying something like, have you not read? And what he's doing is he's going back to Scripture. He's saying, don't you remember what Scripture said? But there's never anybody that pops up and says, well, wait a minute. What about this other verse of Scripture? Or what about these other books of the Bible? There's none of that because they all agreed on what the Bible was. They all agreed on the 39 books that we have that they called the Tanakh. That's the Hebrew word for their Old Testament Scriptures, which is the Torah, the five books of the law. In Hebrew, the Navaim, the books of the prophets. And in the Katavim, the books of the writings, the Tanakh. And they would all agreed on what the Tanakh was by the time of Jesus. And it's very important uh, in the early Christian movement, because what you have in the early Christian movement is a Jewish movement. And so when you have 2 Timothy 3.16, the Apostle Paul, who is Jewish, referring to the Scriptures as being divinely inspired, he's talking about the Old Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament. And the early Christians followed the Apostles' lead, followed the lead of the Lord Jesus, and went with that. And even outside of Christianity, within the late stages of Second Temple Judaism in the 70, 80 ADs, 70s to 80s, in the year of our Lord, 70s and 80s, you had the knowledge within Judaism that the Scriptures were closed. The most famous Jewish historian of that period uh, who wrote about the fall of Jerusalem and even to some degree the life of Jesus was a man by the name of Flavius Josephus. He was a Pharisee. And he kind of got in bed with the Romans and wrote about the fall of Jerusalem working with them. But he said, from Artaxerxes to our own time. And so he's talking about the middle 400s B.C. until, we'll say, 30, 50 A.D. A complete history has been written. That is, between 400 to zero has been written, but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failures of the exact succession of the prophets. So what he's saying is that there are writings... Between Malachi and we'll just say Matthew, between Malachi and Matthew that are maybe good, that are helpful, that are important, but they're not scriptural because they're not prophetic. So even you have somebody within Judaism saying, we've got these books that are good, but they're not prophetic because they're not written by a prophet because there was a sense already that the ministry of the prophets had ended within Judaism, they would say, with the ministry of Malachi. Now, however... Things do get tricky with the books that he's referring to that are called the Apocrypha. And those are 14 books 
um, written between Malachi and Matthew that describe some events and some other, you know, gibberish between um, the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament. And in particular, they record the history of the Maccabean period, which is a very important period that laid a lot of groundwork for things that would happen in the life of Jesus. Nevertheless, those 14 books of the Apocrypha do appear in Catholic Bibles, even though they have not been universally accepted in the history of Roman Catholicism. But the reason they are accepted, if you want to blame one person for that, you can blame St. Jerome. I know you were looking for somebody to blame. And so blame St. Jerome. Jerome is one of the most important figures in the history of Christianity because Jerome learned Greek and learned Hebrew, so you wouldn't have to, and he translated the Bible into Latin. And that Latin Bible called the Latin Vulgate was the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church from the 5th century up until really the 20th century for 1,500 years. His translation and his work was the standard for a large section of Western Christianity. But he wrote and said that the apocryphal books were not scriptural, but from pressure from other people in the church, he included them in his Bible. The phrase that he used to describe them, and this is all very interesting, I can tell. The phrase that he used to describe them was deuterocanonical. Now, who knows? Nobody knows what that means. But actually, what, what it means is that they stand alongside of Scripture, but they are not Scripture. They may teach us some helpful things. They may give us some important history that we can't find anything else. But they're not inspired, and they should not be thought of as the Word of God. And here are some examples of that. Just some things from the Apocrypha. Uh, the book of Wisdom, chapter number 11 and verse number 17 says... Talking to the Lord, for thy all-powerful hand, which created the world out of formless matter. So there's a claim in the book of wisdom that God created the universe not from nothing, but from something that was already here before he created it. That's problematic. The book of Ecclesiasticus, chapter 3 and verse number 30. Listen to this carefully. Water extinguishes a blazing fire. That's true. Then the verse says, so almsgiving atones for sin. Almsgiving atones for sin. Now, without running a rabbit, do you know enough about Roman Catholic theology to know why they may want that in their Bible? Uh, The book of Baruch, chapter 3, verse number 4. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, hear the prayer of the dead of Israel. It's a little weird, isn't it? 1 Maccabees, and I think this is maybe the most important and most telling. 1 Maccabees chapter 9, verse number 27, talking about the period of the Maccabean revolt and Israeli independence. <clears throat> there was great tribulation in Israel, the like of which had not been seen since the time prophets ceased to appear among them. So even when the, within the apocryphal books, there is witness that those books are not prophetic that those books are not Scripture, that those books do not stand with the other books of the Word of God. So that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, the standard was much the same. The the Jewish believers, they looked back at the Old Testament and they wanted to know who wrote it. Were they inspired as a prophet? Were they carried and moved by the Spirit of God? And did it contain doctrinal truth that was consistent with the body of um, received text? Well, it's the same questions that the early Christian believers had in the New Testament. Who wrote the book? 
If you want to know what standard they use to judge a New Testament book to see whether it is the Word of God, that's one of the first ones. Who wrote the book? Because if you are a Christian in the book of Ephesus, in the, in the city of Ephesus in the year you know, 55 A.D., and you get a letter to your church from the Apostle Paul, that's going to carry a little bit more weight than if you get a postcard from Joe the Plumber, right? Does the book have apostolic authority? And most of the books in the New Testament do. Not all of them do. And for instance, there's the book of Hebrews that no one's entirely sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. Probably Paul, but uh, maybe not. We just don't know. And so is it written by an apostle or some other jackleg? Because if it's an apostle, you can say, okay, this carries with it a sort of apostolic weight. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ himself being the cornerstone in Ephesians 2.20. The second... The second criteria is, does the book teach truth or is there nonsense? And with that, did the church receive it as scriptural? So, for instance, you don't have to turn there, but you can make a note of this. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, the apostle Peter refers to the writings of the apostle Paul, And he places them alongside of what he says, other scriptures. So already in the life of Peter, he recognized that the writings of Paul were scriptural. These new writings, these brand new texts that they had were scriptural. You could find the Apostle Paul doing the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, where he refers to Deuteronomy, that's Old Testament scripture, and also the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10 and verse number 7. And so what you have are three criteria, mainly three criteria. Was it written by an apostle or is there apostolic connection? Number two, does the content of the book teach the apostolic faith? That is, does it teach historical Christianity or is it full of gibberish? And third, does the church receive it? Does the church understand it as scripture? So in other words, if you know, some archaeologist comes from ancient Sumeria and says, I have got in my hand a scroll from, and you pick an apostle, the apostle whoever. Apostle Thaddeus. Nobody ever hears anything about him. So we've got this letter from Thaddeus. And this should have been included in the Bible. This has been a lost gospel. That's the phrase they use, right? This is a lost book of the Bible. The question we have to ask ourselves is, why was it lost? And the reason that it was lost is because nobody kept up with it. Nobody used it. Nobody made copies of it and distributed it. And nobody considered it to be as weighty as Scripture. And so what would happen is this. Um, Part of the question was, are there any of the original scrolls left? And the answer is no. There are some that are very, very old. Some dating almost back to the point of the originals. But there's no, as far as we know anyway, there's no copy of the letter that Paul actually wrote to the Ephesians. But what they did is when they would get those letters, they would make copies of it the people in the church that could write. And then they would take the copy from the church of Ephesus that meets in Brother So-and-So's house, and they would take it over to Sister Such-and-Such's house. And if there was somebody there that was able to read and write, they would make a copy of that, and they would make all of these copies. And so the originals are referred to as autographs. There are no autographs left, but there are numerous manuscripts. And you can get really, really nerdy in a hurry talking about all this stuff, and I'm not going to do that tonight. But suffice to say this, that the New Testament, 
has such a wealth of manuscript evidence that far exceeds any other ancient document from the same time period that it's almost embarrassing. To the point of Julius Caesar's records of his Gaelic Wars, I think there's something like maybe a dozen manuscripts, and those manuscripts are mostly five or 600 years after he wrote that work. But the New Testament, you have well in excess of 5,000 manuscripts, many of which date within just a few decades at the latest, um, some from the very life of the apostles. So there is, from the manuscript evidence, there is absolutely no doubt, no doubt, by the very laws of manuscript evidence that judge the historicity of ancient texts, there's no doubt that the New Testament is the most verifiable and trustworthy document from the ancient world. There's no doubt about what was written. There's no doubt about what was read. There's no doubt that when you pick up a copy of a well-translated English Bible, that if the Apostle Paul were here beside you and he could read English, that he would say, that's exactly what I wrote. There's no doubt about that. And so be encouraged that you do have the fullness of the Word of God. But back to our lost Gospels. There are a number of these books that do appear from time to time. That will be two or three centuries after the period of the New Testament. And, and people will say, well, this is you know a hidden gospel that was suppressed by a certain group of Christians. But the reason that they never were used is because they're full of just, well, hogwash, right? Y'all know what that means, right? For instance, here's from the Gospel of Thomas. Here's a section, the very last section of the Gospel of Thomas, the 114th verse. Simon Peter said to them, this is supposedly after the resurrection of Jesus, he says to all the disciples, Make Mary leave us, for females don't deserve life. Now that does kind of sound like something Peter might say, so I'll give them that. But here's how Jesus responds in the Gospel of Thomas. Jesus said, look, I will guide her to make her male. Some of y'all didn't hear that. I will guide her to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every female who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that is a very enlightened and progressive <laughs> viewpoint. <clears throat> but I don't think that Jesus of Nazareth ever said that every female who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> and especially he makes you wonder like, how, Lord? Um, the Shepherd of Hermas is another one of these books from the third century. It says, do you think, however, that the sins of those who repent are remitted? Do you think that if you repent of your sins, they are removed? The answer is not altogether. But he who repents must torture his own soul. And be exceedingly humble in all his conduct. And be afflicted with many kinds of affliction. And if he endure the afflictions that come upon him. He who created all things and endued them with power. Will assuredly have compassion and will heal him. So what the author is saying is that if you repent. Then you need to make sure you punish yourself. You afflict yourself. You hurt yourself. And if you do that, then God will see the way you've punished yourself. And then God will forgive you, maybe. And so, the early Christians read those sorts of things and said, No, that's not scriptural. And if it's not consistent with what the received Word of God teaches, then it cannot be inspired because the Spirit of God would not contradict Himself. And so we do know from the very Word of God that there are other writings from the apostles that aren't in the Bible. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians, 
you find out that 1 Corinthians was not Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. But we don't have that letter. And the question is, why don't we have that letter? Well, maybe as helpful as it was, and as good as it certainly was, and as necessary as it was for the Corinthians to guide them and to pastor them, it wasn't inspired by the Holy Spirit. Not in the way that the letters we have to, first, to, to Corinth and First and Second Corinthians are. At the very least, God did not preserve it for us. God didn't keep it for us. And if God did not preserve it for us, then we have to conclude that if God didn't preserve it across 2,000 years, then He didn't want us to have it. We don't need it. There's nothing necessary in it that we can't have in other places. So, what did the book say? Who wrote the book? And does it teach the faith once for all delivered to the saints? Now, there's a couple of important dates I'll give you, and we'll close this joker down and head to the house. By 367 A.D., you have people like Athanasius, who's a very important figure in the history of the church, who is completing his list of New Testament books, which contain the same 27 books that you have. The most important date would be 397 A.D., the Council of Carthage, where um, the church bishops officially delivered the same canon that you have today. Um, the question was framed to ask about Emperor Constantine. And there's a lot of confusion about Constantine's role in the, um, we'll say, development or advance of Christianity. Constantine was emperor of Rome and was converted. Some people say not really. Some people say maybe. Some people say enthusiastically yes. But he ended the persecution of Roman Christians and did help convene a council at Nicaea. But the council at Nicaea in the early 4th century, in the early 300s, had nothing to do with Scripture. And it had everything to do with the eternal um, deity and sonship of Christ. Was Christ the eternal Son of God or was Christ just a created being who became the Son of God? That was the purpose of the Council of Nicaea. And Constantine um, dies shortly after that and the Council of Constantinople is not until 60 years after Constantine dies. Constantine has literally nothing at all to do with the development of the New Testament canon. The only thing that he did of any real importance related to the canon was that after his conversion, he, he commissioned Eusebius, who was the bishop of Constantinople, to have 50 copies of the New Testament produced for use in the churches of Constantinople. And so the emperor tells the bishop of the leading city, make some Bibles that we can have for people to read. And the Bibles that he produced contain the same 27 books of the New Testament that you have in your New Testament. And so... What you have, I think, is a pretty universal witness from the church. Um, apart from a few weirdos, and there have always been weirdos in the church. Don't think that's a uniquely Baptist thing, all right? They've always been there. It's just always. Some, it's like a bowl of oatmeal. You know, you got fruits, nuts, and flakes everywhere you look. And apart from those fruits, nuts, and flakes, by and large, the mainstream of Christianity has said, you've got these 39 books of the Jewish Old Testament we know are scriptural, and the 27 books of um, the Christian New Testament that we receive as scriptural. What you should know today is that your Bible is absolutely and completely trustworthy. Without, without any hesitation, without any reservation, I would tell you, and this is one of the main reasons, folks, that I am a Christian, is that I believe without any hesitation that when I read my Bible, I am reading 
exactly what the Lord inspired these authors to write. And I'm reading it by a miracle of the grace of God in a language that I can understand. And we are so blessed, so blessed as English speakers that we have such a gluttony of Bibles, that we don't have you know, just a page of Scripture or a verse or two of Scripture. We're blessed that we're able to read it. I mean, think about how many Christians through the years have loved Jesus and have loved Scripture, but they've depended on somebody else to read it for them. And we are so blessed, so blessed. So the important thing for us is that we show devotion to the Word of God. We read the Word of God, study the Word of God, pray the Word of God, memorize the Word of God, and make use of the Word of God. I hope that answers more questions than it creates. Um, If not, please forgive me. Um, but love your Bible and use it well. Let's pray tonight. Father, we do thank you for the gift of your word. And Lord, we thank you for a trustworthy word that you have given to us sovereignly over the centuries and over the millennia using imperfect men, even in its very composition. Lord, you inspired them to point us to Jesus. And Lord, I thank you for the faithful witness of the apostles and the prophets, the writers of the Old Testament, Lord, reaching all the way back to Moses and then moving forward to the chroniclers of David's life and the prophets, Lord, David himself, Solomon, the apostles who recorded the Gospels, Mark and Luke, the apostle Paul, your brothers James and Jude. God, we thank you that they've given us this great gift and we thank you for those with their incredible gifts of translation, who can look at ancient texts and can produce them in languages we can understand. We thank you, Lord, for those who have labored diligently with manuscripts to compare and to ensure that what we have is the reliable message that you have for us. We thank you, Lord, for those who have faithfully taught us the Bible. Lord, for me, that reaches all the way back to my youngest days before I can remember in Sunday school. And for preachers that have taught me the Word of God. Pastors that have labored in the Word of God so I could understand it. God, we thank you for those incredible gifts. Help us, God, to be passionate and excited about the Word of God. Lord, help us to read it, to know it. And as the 119th Psalm itself says, help us to hide it in our, word, hide it in our heart that we may not sin against God. Let it be, Lord, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. Lord, I pray that you would be with us as we leave this place tonight. Be with each of our families. Be with our church body. And Lord, help us to grow in grace until we meet again and meet with us on this coming Lord's Day. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If hearts and minds are clear, you are dismissed. God bless y'all.